1: Lessons Gleaned from the Righteousness of Christ's Disciples, next on Abounding Grace. So when Jesus picks his disciples, is he looking for the best of the best of the best? Is he looking for a righteousness that's in themselves, or a person who's available, for the righteousness of God. That's the subject today here on Abounding Grace as we look at Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. The righteousness of Christ's disciples is the title of our program. Join us for Abounding Grace now from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Once again, Pastor Gary Wagner.
0: Unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Throughout his sermon, Jesus focuses on one great point, and that is the total inadequacy of the righteousness and the good works of every human being to make them acceptable with God. Jesus emphasizes it here. You see it behind his words, and you see it expressly stated, not only in this, the Sermon on the Mount, but throughout Scripture. The total inadequacy of any acts of kindness, any good deed, any eternal actions on our part, any obedience to the law of God to make us worthy of being accepted by God at all in any way. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, who were the leaders of the church, placed their traditions written by the rabbis, such as the Talmud, at least on par with Scripture, if not at times even above it. And the children of the Pharisees were far more familiar with the oral and written rabbinical teachings than they were with the law, word of God. The Pharisees' zeal for their traditions and their supplementations of the Bible modified, perverted, and subverted the whole law of God, which Jesus Christ came to vindicate. As over against the Pharisees, who taught, who thought they were defending God's law, but who, according to Jesus himself, were perverting it. Christ's own ethical teachings, he said, were in exact accord with God himself and what he had taught in the Old Testament. And Jesus came to defend, explain, confirm, and enforce God's law in his kingdom. How inadequate is the righteousness, the good deeds, the acts of kindness of the Pharisees and of any human being. Listen, every good, kind, charitable thing we do is so inadequate that it bars us from the kingdom of God. Any righteousness you perform will keep you out of the kingdom of God. All acts of kindness or charity that you have performed in and of yourself will keep you out of the kingdom of God. The righteousness, the acts of kindness, the good deeds that we do are all so defective that they will damn us for all eternity. That is bad. That is how bad all the good things we do are. Not only is it inadequate, not only is it ineffective, but all of our righteousness apart from Christ merely damns us. The more things we do in an attempt to do right of ourselves, to be kind, to love, to be charitable, to be patient, apart from faith in Christ are nothing more than nails in our coffin that will send us to hell. Unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is putting a blowtorch to the theology and the ethics, the doctrine and the practice of the Pharisees who thought that the only thing that is important is the external behavior going through the right actions, thinking the right things, doing all the right things at the right time. And the whole point that Jesus is making is that we live like we live because we think like we think. Our thinking and our believing must be straight, must be according to the Word of God if our living and doing is to be straight according to the Word of God. A correct creed and law are determinative of right action and right behavior. If a person in his own mind replaces light for darkness and darkness for light, his life will correspond to what he believes. You see, my friends, it is simply not true to say that it makes no difference what a person believes if he will just do what is right. If a person's morals or judgments are perverted, or not done to bring pleasure to God, no matter how zealous and sincere he is, his practice will be perverted as well. Jesus is charging the Pharisees and most human beings in our American culture with the sin of hypocrisy by saying your righteousness is totally inadequate because the standard of your righteousness is not my will and it is not based on my word. It is your own humanly derived traditions. And in following all your traditions, whether they are the traditions of your church or the traditions of your family or the traditions of your own experience, you are breaking the commandments of God. Even when you're trying to obey the commandments of God externally, you're still breaking them because your motives are all wrong. Now, how is it that a disciple's Righteous then then surpasses and exceeds the righteousness of zealous experts in ethics and morality. The scribes and the Pharisees were considered the most knowledgeable zealots for morality in their day. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds, supersedes, is superior to the righteousness of these zealots for righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So how is our righteousness superior to the righteousness that some human beings think they are producing in and of themselves? Let me give you four ways. First of all, the righteousness that Christ demands of his disciples, without which you will never see God, is a righteousness that has a different motive than the motives of the Pharisees or the unbeliever today, who is trying to do right. The true Christian's motive for righteousness, listen carefully, is gratitude to and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Any obedience that is acceptable to God is an obedience. It is a righteousness, a conformity of His law word that is motivated by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The unbeliever, on the other hand, does right things. He performs right acts of kindness. He tries to bring his life into conformity, sometimes, to what God demands, in a vain attempt to make enough points with God, to win God's favor. You see, maybe if I do this, God will be pleased with me. Maybe if I do this I can earn God's favor and when I die everything between God and myself will be okay. That is their motivation for obedience to make points with God or with mankind. Whereas the disciple of Christ obey God not to make points because he knows that is not possible because but because he is in love with Christ He so loves Jesus Christ and is grateful for him for saving him from his sins that he is willing to do whatever Christ asks of him to please him and to honor him. The righteousness of the true Christian is superior to the righteousness, so to speak, of the non-believer because of his motive to please God out of love for God. Second, Our righteousness is superior to the righteousness of the the Pharisees because of our goal for righteousness. What is the ultimate goal we are trying to achieve? The ultimate goal is the glory and the honor of God. We know that Christ has secured our eternal salvation, so there is no thought in our minds of earning or meriting or purchasing our salvation or doing something to guarantee it. Because as Christians, our standing with God is secure. Due to our faith in the salvific work of Christ, we now have as the goal of our life to honor Him and to live for His pleasure, to magnify His name, and then to lead other people to praise Him. An unbeliever can't do that. Nor does he have a desire to do so. Because he is so in love with himself. The unbeliever does whatever he does that is right out of self-interest. To satisfy himself and make himself feel good. Or to bring honor and praise to himself. There is a third way in which the righteousness of Christ's disciple is superior to that of the non-Christian. And that is in its standard. First, we have its motivation, which is faith in Christ. Second, its goal, which is the glory of God. And the third, the standard by which you determine what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what's loving and what's hateful, what is moral and what is immoral, what is ethical and what is unethical. The standard for the disciple is exclusively and totally The law, word of God, found only in Holy Scripture. Nothing else, beloved. The Bible is the final and only authority for the believer. He believes this book in its entirety, which originated in the very mind of God. God not only chose the men, he wanted to write the Bible. And he not only put into their minds the ideas he wanted them to communicate, but he also chose what they wrote without treating them as robots. So the disciple always says, my standard is never the traditions of men. It's never the mores of the culture. The standard by which I must make all of my decisions of right and wrong is totally and exclusively, solely, the Word of Almighty God. Now, the Pharisees didn't believe that because they not only had the Torah and the Talmud, they also had what was called, is called the Mishnah. And these commentaries by the rabbis were used as if they were a continuation of the Word of God. So they put their ideas on par with the Bible. Their standard was not the same as that which Christ demands of us, his disciples. They added to, and they took away from the actual words of God. And we find the same thing today. People are always trying to add to the word of God by putting the ideas of man on par with the word of God. You can look at the various cults around our country and around the world to see this practice blatantly used. Whenever a cult is invented by either a man or a woman, one of the first things they do is add their ideas to the Word of God. And in most cases, they write their own books and state that this is a new revelation from God or a supplement to the Bible that God's given just me. Whereas for the child of God, the true disciple. His righteousness is superior to the righteousness of anyone else because he has a different standard from the world, which is exclusively and totally the written word of God found only in the Bible. There's a fourth reason why the righteousness of the disciple is superior to that of the righteousness that the world produces, and that is because of its dynamic, the dynamic of our righteousness. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the child of God recognizes, or he better, that he has no righteousness of his own. He recognizes that all of his righteousness is as filthy rags, that there is none that do good. No, not one. And they stand condemned before Almighty God. Of course, were it not for the grace of God. And the provision made in the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. So on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ died. And took as was taken as our substitute. The punishment for our sins in our place. And by his life of perfect living for 33 years, lived in our place. So that perfect righteousness of Christ is now offered to us by God. And God says, I'll tell you what, I'll take the righteous life of Christ in the place of your own unrighteous life because, you know, you'll never be able to cut it. You'll you'll never be able to produce righteousness that is acceptable to me. But out of grace and mercy, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe that his life and death is the basis for eternal salvation, then I'll take that perfect life of his And you can offer it to me in your place. That means that our righteousness is superior to any righteousness that the world could ever create. But we must say, Lord, I still have another problem. Oh, I thank you for all your provisions and for the faith that you have given me to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, I do offer you his righteous life and atoning death in my place. But I'm still a sinner. I don't have what it takes to be your righteous servant. And so God says, in effect, I've already thought of that. I knew you would bring that up. So before the world even began, I planned it out in the gospel that I would give you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to place my spirit in your heart. And he is going to give you the willpower, the motivation, and the ability to live a righteous life. Oh, you won't be perfectly righteous before you die. But the Holy Spirit will give you the power to keep from sitting so much and obey me more. God says, in fact, I have thought of everything you need to live righteously for my glory. And that is the reason why the righteousness of the disciples of Christ is superior to the righteousness this world produces. It is because of the work and the love of Christ which the Sermon on the Mount points to. And unless your righteousness is superior to the righteousness of this culture we live in, you will not enter the kingdom of God And, beloved, that is the theme of Jesus' message in this powerful Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you would please listen carefully to this long quote of Martin Lloyd-Jones in closing. He says, Blessed or happy are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They are the only happy people. Now, the whole world is seeking for happiness... There is no question about that. Everybody wants to be happy. That is the great motive behind every act and and ambition, behind all work and all striving and effort. Everything is designed for happiness. But the great tragedy of the world is that, though it gives its soul to seek for happiness, it never seems to be able to find it. The present state of the world reminds us of that very forcibly. What is the matter? I think the answer is that we have never understood this text as we should have done. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. What does it mean? Let me put it negatively like this. We are not to hunger and thirst after blessedness. But that is what most people are doing. We put happiness and blessedness as the one thing that we desire, and thus we always miss it. It always eludes us. According to Scripture, happiness is never something that, we should, that should be sought directly. It's always something that results from seeking something else. Now this is true of those outside the church and of many inside the church as well. It is obviously the tragedy of those who are outside the church. The world is seeking happiness. That is the meaning of its pleasure mania. That is the meaning of everything men and women do, not only in their work, but still more in their pleasures. They are trying to find happiness. They are making it their goal, their number one objective. (coughs) But they do not find it. Because whenever you put happiness before righteousness, you will be doomed to misery. That is the great message of the Bible from beginning to end. They alone are truly happy who are seeking to be righteous. But happiness in the place of righteousness. Put happiness in the place of righteousness. And you will never get it. This is equally true, however, of many within the church. There are large numbers of people in the Christian church who seem to spend the whole of their life seeking something which they can never find, seeking for some kind of happiness and blessedness. They go around from meeting to meeting and convention to convention, always hoping that they're going to get this wonderful thing, this this experience that's going to fill them with joy and flood them with some ecstasy. They see that other people have it, but they themselves do not seem to get it. So they seek it and covet it, always hungry and thirsty for it, but they never get it. Now, that's not surprising. We are not meant to hunger and thirst after experiences. We are not meant to hunger and thirst after blessedness. If we want to be truly happy and blessed, we must hunger and thirst after righteousness. We must not put blessedness or happiness or experience in first place. No, that is something that God gives to those who seek righteousness. Oh, the tragedy that we do not follow, the simple teaching and instruction of the Word of God, but are always coveting and seeking this experience which we hope. We're going to have the experiences of the gift of God. What you and I are to covet and to seek from God alone and to hunger and thirst for is righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ, in a sermon only God could preach, teaches his elect that they are to live righteously in all Areas of their life. Not as the scribes and the Pharisees trying to earn points with God. But beloved, out of gratitude for our glorious salvation he has graciously bestowed upon us. Even though we deserve his damnation. Except for the redeeming power of our Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. And that, beloved, is why the Sermon on the Mount points us to Christ and not the Sermon itself. Next week, Lord willing, we are going to bring to a close our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the picture of a true Christian that you have presented to us in the Sermon on the Mount. We know perfectly well that such a life is only possible but by the power of your Spirit indwelling us, motivating us and empowering us. Oh, Lord, don't let the focus of our lives be our own happiness. Instead, give us a real hunger and thirst for righteousness so that we seek above all things to glorify you for Christ's sake.
1: 866 You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church two in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408-866-5607. We thank you for joining us, and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner.